Well, it is great uh, to sing about the Lord's goodness this morning, isn't it? Because God is good, and all the time, amen, amen. Uh, well, Dana and I are, are certainly rejoicing, as I think most of you heard, uh, in God's goodness. And so before we open God's word today, I know you're all waiting to see some pictures, right? You've been dying to see them. So show them to us, Pastor Mike. Okay, I will, I will. So uh, this uh, is our first grandchild. Um, and uh, on Friday, March 22nd at 5.21 p.m. Central Daylight Time in St. Louis, Charles Gordon Kim III arrived, and he was 8 pounds, 4 ounces, 19 and a half inches long, and he's pretty much perfect, <laughs> and also extremely intelligent, I can tell already. And uh, so we just had a great time this last week uh, getting to know him just a little bit, being with our our daughter, uh, Abby, and that guy that she married. Um, <laughs> and uh, we don't have any pictures of them because that's not really what we're about here today. <laughs> so you don't really want to see those pictures, but uh, it's just been a wonderful time. Um, we're calling him sometimes CK3, and, but mostly we're calling him Charlie, and he's our first grandchild. And it's pretty amazing, as I know many of you uh, know for your own out of your own experience, uh, what that blessing is like. So I just wanted to uh, thank you for praying for us, and, uh, um, and, and I'll be sure to satisfy your desire for more pictures in the weeks ahead. So, uh, well, we'll get to our study of God's Word today. This is week number three of our series, Red Talks. We are in John's Gospel. We are looking at some conversations that Jesus had uh, with people. And you'll want to get your Bibles open to John chapter 4 where we find this very remarkable and, for some of us, a very familiar story about a talk that Jesus had with a woman by a well. And this is actually the longest recorded conversation uh, between Jesus and another person. And interestingly enough, it is with a woman who is an outcast. And that fact tells us so very much. And this is a story that really leaves us marveling at Jesus' wisdom and grace and love, at his tenderness and his patience. And I don't know, but maybe you have come here today and maybe you're wondering if there's any hope for you because of your past, because of choices that you've made. Well, I just want to tell you before we get into it, this story is for you. And this is a story that shows us the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus meets this woman, and as you're going to see, it's a woman that everyone else rejects, and he reaches out to her. He doesn't condemn her. He offers her living water. And it shows us this story that there really is hope for you, but you need to understand that that hope is found only in Jesus Christ. And that's the central idea that I have for you today. Just one thing, a very simple point woven throughout this story, only Jesus can satisfy the thirst in your heart. Amen. Not money, not your job, not sex, not your spouse or your kids, not your friends, not achievement, not popularity, not even religious traditions and rituals. Only Jesus can satisfy the thirst in our hearts. 
You see, it's a reality that when we look to anything else to give us what only Jesus can give us, we will always be just like this woman coming every day with our empty jars only to be disappointed. Because all these things that we try to find hope in, they only leave us empty. They were never designed to give us what only Jesus can give. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you stop and think about it, you'll see it real quickly, how thirsty, how absolutely thirsty our entire culture is. People everywhere, thirsty, dying of thirst. We just live in this age of thirst where where people are constantly seeking satisfaction in all kinds of places and not finding it. And whether you're here today as an unbeliever, maybe you're coming to Jesus for the very first time, or maybe you've known him for a long time, you believe in him, and you're just coming back to Jesus again and again and again, whether you're rich or poor, popular or unpopular, an outsider or an insider, the truth remains that only Jesus can satisfy the thirst in our hearts. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing that many people less fortunate often find themselves thinking that if they could just earn enough money or just achieve enough power, then all their dreams would be fulfilled. Only to discover that they're not. In fact, it's a reality that only success may only intensify sometimes the inner emptiness that's inside a successful person. When they discover that this thing that they have made their God, this thing that they have made their functional Savior, does not give them what they have been longing for, what they've been looking for. Celebrities know this really well. And the truth is, oftentimes we should pity them, not try to be them. I could give you many, many examples of this. Here's one. Years ago, the great tennis champion, Boris Becker, he said this, I had won Wimbledon twice. Once as the youngest player ever, I was rich with all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. Not too long ago in Business Insider, there was a report about Marcus Pearson, 36-year-old founder of the video game Minecraft, He sold his company for $2.5 billion, second leading video game in history. And and following the sale, he purchased a $70 million mansion. He spent his days just living the dream, but it didn't satisfy. He, He wrote this on Twitter. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. Hanging out with a bunch of friends, partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, And I have never felt more isolated. You see, if we try to find satisfaction outside of Jesus, these these functional saviors will not only fail us, they will end up enslaving us. And if you are here today and you're looking for satisfaction outside of Jesus, I'm just here to tell you, you're going to end up a sad person or a scared person or a guilty person or an angry person. And you're not going to end up a satisfied person. One of the most powerful expressions of this reality that I've ever uh, heard uh, comes from a man named David Foster Wallace, uh, an award-winning postmodern novelist. Uh, He once wrote a 1,000-word sentence, uh, which nobody, even him, probably understood. (laughs) 
very famous author in certain circles, and he gave this commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2004. Interestingly enough, David Foster Wallace um, was an ardent atheist, but I want you to listen to what he said to these graduates in a speech that is entitled, listen to this, This is Water. That's the title of his speech. He said, here's something that is weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. Those are the words of David Foster Wallace, an atheist. A few years after this speech, Wallace killed himself. He hung himself while his wife was out on a walk. And Wallace was not a religious person, obviously, but he understood the reality that the Bible clearly teaches everyone, everyone worships. We all worship. Everyone is basing his or her life on something. Everyone is searching for satisfaction. And I think that Wallace is correct, that anything we choose to worship outside of Jesus will eat us alive. See, we look at Jesus in this story with this woman here in John 4, and what we see is one who will not eat us alive, but one who will actually give us life, one who will actually satisfy our souls with a never-ending fountain of joy through the indwelling Holy Spirit. I want us to walk our way and work our way through this conversation And I'm going to give you three kind of hooks to hang some thoughts on. Here's the first one. You can write this down in your notes. Jesus seeks thirsty people. We see this in verses 1 through 6, and this gives us the context for this conversation. also kind of gives us a clue about what Jesus was up to. Here's what John writes. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So Jesus is growing in popularity. So is John the Baptist. And Jesus, he doesn't want conflict with the Pharisees right now. That that time is going to come soon enough. He also doesn't want a rivalry to develop between him and John the Baptist. And so he leaves. And we see this in verse 4. John says, now he had to go through Samaria. Don't miss John's language. It's not that Jesus just went through Samaria. He had to. And this is This is John's way of telling us that God is somehow compelling Jesus to go through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria 
called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, unless we understand the cultural and social realities behind this story, we won't really get what's going on here. And here's where what we're to understand. In Jesus' day, Samaritans were seen by Jewish people basically as heretical half-breeds. Samaritans gave it right back to the Jewish people. And this all grew out of a history hundreds of years uh, long, hundreds of years earlier. You can read about this in the Old Testament. The the Assyrian Empire had come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, deported many of the Jews and replaced them with the Syrians. And the Jews that remained in Israel, the northern kingdom, had intermarried with those Assyrians. And they had not only mixed their nationalities together, they also had mixed their religions and created a, a new religion, a syncretistic religion, combining the faith of God in the Old Testament with these other pagan beliefs. They ended up with their own temple. They ended up only accepting certain parts of the, what we call the Old Testament, just the first five books, the Pentateuch, many, many other things. And as a result, there had developed this great hostility between the Jews and Samaritans. It was so bad that many Jewish people would not even walk through Samaria to get to Galilee, even though it was the easiest route. You you would walk around it, even though it took three extra days to walk around. Now, I just want to submit to you, you know you really hate someone when you're willing to walk three whole days to avoid them. We're like that, aren't we, as human beings? But it's interesting, Jesus is not. Jesus doesn't go around Samaria. Jesus goes through Samaria because Jesus is seeking thirsty people, even those everyone else rejects. Verse 6 tells us Jesus was weary from his journey. It just reminds us of his humanity. He was sitting beside the well. John says it's about the sixth hour. That's noon. And we we need to know that the well was an essential part of the life of the village, not only physically, but also socially. People not only came to the well to get life-giving water there, they often would come and also experience social relationships. They would come and meet and and talk at the well. We would call it fellowship. And, and, you know, everyone knows really that Sikar in ancient Hebrew means Starbucks. It was that kind of place. Some scholars also make kind of an interesting connection between wells and marriage proposals. And we see this in several places in the Old Testament. Maybe you remember Genesis 24, Abraham's servant finds a wife for Abraham's son Isaac at a well in Haran. In Exodus, Moses flees Egypt. He goes to Midian. He meets the daughters of Jethro at a well. One of them becomes his wife. You could kind of think of it as sort of like, you know, ancient online dating. You go to the well. That's where the magic happens. And it's possible that in John 4, we are meant to hear some echoes of these betrothal scenes. It's possible that John is suggesting to us that in a sense, Jesus is proposing to this woman. He asked this woman, as you're going to see, who's never had a fulfilling marriage in her life to enter into a new redeeming marriage with him. He calls her, just like he calls us, into the very best of all relationships. He pursues her 
like every woman who's ever lived wants to be pursued. See, we see in this that Jesus seeks us not because of anything good in us, but just because he's merciful. So he approaches this woman. It's noon. That means it would have been blazing hot. And this is the first indication we have of who she is in the culture of that village. We know from reading this, she's an outcast because everyone drew water in the morning when it was cooler. No one goes at noon to draw water and carry that heavy water jar back to your home because of the heat. And we kind of understand something like this here. Think of summertime where it's cool in the morning, but it can be really hot in the summer, right? You don't go out on your, your jog or your walk in the middle of the afternoon, usually, if you're intelligent. You don't go walk your dog when it's over 100 degrees unless you really don't like your dog. And so she comes to the well when it's hot and she has no friends. She's by herself. We're going to find out that she is coming to draw water for the man that she's living with who's not her husband. And this is the person who Jesus decides to have a talk with. It's really, really a beautiful, beautiful thing. So let's enter this conversation. And here's the second thing I want you to see. We see here that Jesus satisfies thirsty people. This conversation unfolds for us how he does that, how he satisfies our thirsty hearts. And the first thing I want you to notice is Jesus satisfies by giving us living water. Look at verse 7 and following. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And, And I want you to notice here, maybe you've seen this. It's incredible how Jesus starts conversations. He's thirsty here. This makes sense. But you need to understand Jesus is crossing all kinds of barriers to do this. Many Jewish people, as I mentioned, wouldn't even have entered Samaria. They certainly wouldn't have asked a Samaritan for a drink. They most certainly wouldn't drink out of the same water jar as a Samaritan. And rabbis almost never would talk to women. And Jesus is just stepping over all of these barriers, racial barriers, religious barriers, historic barriers, all because of his love for this rejected woman. Verse 8 says, His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Like I said, it's lunchtime. The disciples have gone to Whole Foods to pick some food up. And Jesus thus is going to have a couple hours to talk to this woman. This woman who, as you're about to see, is, is surprised and skeptical that Jesus is talking to her. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, and you need, to, you need to read this with some snark in it, okay? That's how you need to hear these words. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John writes, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's like she's saying, what's up, man? What's your agenda? And based on her past, she probably had a pretty jaded view of men. I, I get the idea this woman is, is pretty feisty. I, I think I've met her. And some of you guys say, yeah, I've married her. <laughs> but she says, what do you want with me? And Jesus, he just turns the conversation. And remember, like he did with Nicodemus, he just turns it from the material realm to the spiritual realm. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Have you ever noticed how Jesus speaks so uniquely to each unique person that he has a conversation with? He doesn't have a, a canned evangelism presentation that he gives every time. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with learning a certain way to share the gospel. But Jesus understands people, and he is able to take whatever situation he encounters and, and quickly and graciously turn it into a gospel conversation. See, for this woman at a well, a natural conversation topic is water. You know, just as we all need hydration for our physical bodies, we also need something to satisfy our spiritual thirst. And we will try to satisfy our souls with something. But we know only God can do this through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And not too long ago, I, I heard someone tell about an encounter that some Christians had at this restaurant in Berlin, Germany. And there was a very friendly waiter who was uh, serving their table. And as they talked with him, he called himself a mixologist. He wasn't just a regular waiter. He was also a mixologist, and he was serving them. And they learned really quickly that he's this very secular person, didn't really understand Christianity at all. And as they talked with him, one of these Christians said, I have a question for you. Why do you think you have a palate? Have you ever asked yourself who gives you, who gave you taste buds? And they just had this really interesting conversation about this. And then another one of them asked them, and the mixologist was in, seeming to enjoy the conversation, uh, asked them, have you ever heard the story of how Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding? And that's in John chapter 2. And this guy said to this mixologist, well, that's a mixologist turning water into wine. And he laughed about that, and they, they just were talking with him. They told him how, how that miracle Jesus did was really the sign of what's to come, about this new wedding that would one day come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. They, they told him how the Bible, the whole Bible, really is telling this story. And they asked him, do you know that this is actually the true story of the whole world? They said to this German mixologist, maybe you like mixology because you're made for Jesus. Maybe your longing for the perfect drink is a longing for something more. See, Jesus does this sort of thing so very well. You might find as you interact with people, other people may be more drawn to the Nicodemus story, maybe because they're religious, but they don't really know Jesus. Maybe they'll connect with that. Or, or maybe when you're interacting with someone facing death or maybe at a funeral, maybe the story of Lazarus in John 11 would speak to them. You may even find yourself this week talking to a woman who feels so ashamed of her life. And John 4 is just so beautiful. See, there, there are so many stories that fit occasions that can point people to Jesus. And, and Jesus is just this master weaver of topics. This is what we're seeing here, the weaver at work, taking this woman and taking her life and applying spiritual truth to her. Now, at this point in the story, she's a lot like Nicodemus was in John chapter 3. She doesn't get it yet. She's still operating at the material realm. And maybe you remember when we talked about how Jesus told Nicodemus, hey man, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus only thinking in the material realm is like, well, wouldn't my mom hate that? 
I mean, having to do that all over again. And Jesus tells him, no, you don't get it. I'm talking about spiritual birth. And so she's like him in that way. She doesn't get the spiritual reality. But in almost every social way, she's exactly the opposite of him. Nicodemus was Jewish, and he was religious, and he was respected. She is a Samaritan, and she is rejected, and she doesn't know anything. No one no one wants to be with her. See, in the end, spiritually, we're all alike. Both of them were spiritually blind, so are we. All of us, we need our eyes opened. Jesus says, or she says in verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's thinking in material terms. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? See, she's not getting it. And Jesus, who knows everything, could so easily play this condescension game with her, but He doesn't. He doesn't say what's wrong with you. He's patient. He's tender. He just keeps pressing gently, tenderly further in. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus is saying, in me there is joy, there's peace. And as we drink from the well of salvation, even in the midst of all the pain and sorrow that we face in this fallen world, in Jesus we have a well of salvation. Jesus is so patient. He just keeps pushing. He's trying to help her see. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Maybe you've read John's gospel enough to know that in the gospel of John, living water always refers to the new life that's available to us through Jesus. That as we embrace him as our Savior, we're indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, and we have this inner source of living water that never goes away. You see, in reality, sin is turning away from living water and drinking dirt And we don't need to look anywhere else to quench our thirst. We just look to Jesus. Jesus satisfies. It's kind of interesting in verse 14. Maybe you saw this. Jesus says, whoever drinks this water, I will give him. It doesn't say her. And you might expect him to use the feminine pronoun here because he's talking to a woman. But I think this is an indication Jesus knows what's going on in her life. It is revealed in the next verse that she's coming to draw water for a man, a man that she's living with. Jesus is now about to take the conversation in that direction. But we also see that Jesus satisfies by providing the best of all relationships. Look at verses 16 through 18. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. Now, when you're reading this, this is a pretty hard turn in the conversation, isn't it? We're talking about living water, and all of a sudden, Jesus jumps in and says, call your husband. Well, he knows everything about this woman. So, so why does he bring this up? Well, from the response she gives in verse 17, we know that Jesus knows that he has touched on an idol, that there, there's this wound in her heart, and this is the wound through which Jesus gets to her heart. Have you noticed this about yourself? 
It's often in areas of life where we're most guarded and maybe we're ashamed. Very sensitive areas of our life when someone or something touches them, there's this visceral reaction. And that's what we see in verse 17. She says, I have no husband. And I think she would have said it abruptly. You kind of sense in her tone that that Jesus has touched a nerve. I want you to be clear because some of us will go this direction. Jesus is not trying to shame her. He's just probing because he loves her. And he is wooing her and he is inviting her into the best of all relationships. Verse 17 continues, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, you might first read this, and it kind of feels like Jerry Springer's show. You expect (laughs) Jerry, Jerry, you know, and like the big reveal is going to happen, and it's going to be embarrassing and all of that, but that's not what's happening here. See, again, Jesus is getting to this woman's heart. He's leading her. He's drawing her. He's showing her her sin her emptiness, her brokenness. And that's so important. Do you realize it's also true for you? Until you see your need, you won't come to the Savior. You may be here today and you don't think you need a Savior. If you don't think you need a Savior, you're not going to come to him. And Jesus is showing her that she needs a Savior, that there's something in her that's broken that needs to be healed. And by the way, I just have to keep saying this. I want to point it out. This story is such good news for anyone here who has made a total train wreck of all their relationships. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering if there is any healing, any any cure. And I'm here to tell you, if you haven't heard it yet, let me say it now. There is healing in Christ. This conversation reminds us that there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. You know, some of you, maybe like this woman, are divorced. And maybe you wonder, is there forgiveness for me? Is there love for me? From time to time, someone will show up here and they'll say, I'm divorced. Can I come to this church? I just want to tell you, that's sort of like saying, I just got hit by a car Can I go to the hospital? Of course you can. That's why we're here. We're we're here for broken people. And here is a, a broken woman looking at Jesus, and he's not condemning her. He is leading her to a place of repentance and and salvation. Third thing we see is that Jesus satisfies by leading us to true worship. The story, again, takes a pivot in verse 19, and and some people see this as a deflection, too. She doesn't want to talk to Jesus about her personal life, so she's going to shift to some tangential issue. Let's let's talk about church, and that may be going on. We don't know what her motive is, actually, but it also may be that she's just talking about that which she knows, because she senses that this is not an ordinary man who's talking to her. Now, I would kind of encourage you, if you're reading through this story, when you read to verse 18, before you read verse 19, which we're about to read, a good way to read it and understand it would be just to stop and pause. Because Jesus says what he says, 
And I think she just stopped. And then in verse 19, she says, Sir, (laughs) sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so for whatever reason, she turns the conversation this way. And and Jesus makes, as he responds, some very important, important points about worship, kind of like a little sermonette that comes out of this conversation. And I want to real quickly just point out four truths for us that apply uh, to us as well. Four things that we see in these next few verses. Here's the first one. You can write this down. A a satisfaction problem is always a worship problem. It's always a worship problem. Are you unsatisfied? Are you restless? Are are you thirsty in your life? Are, Are you empty and bored and don't know where to turn? It's a worship problem. It's a problem with your relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. So it's really not a diversion in the conversation. Sin problems are always worship problems. Satisfaction problems are always worship problems. Notice next in verse 21, secondly, worship is not about where but who. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, it's all about worshiping the real God, not where but who. That's what matters. And Jesus, we're going to learn as we read John's gospel, is the true temple, the place where we meet with God. He says a time is coming, and this is a reference to his death, his resurrection and ascension, in which the curtain to the temple is going to be thrown open. Jesus, by his body and his death, his life, is going to provide the way to worship God truly. And then third, we see that true worship is a response to God's revelation. Verse 22, he says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, Jesus is saying the Jewish people have the revelation of God, and true worship is always a response to God revealing himself. This is One of the reasons why I'm always telling you, you need to be reading God's word. You need to be in this book. You can't worship truly if you're not reading God's truth and responding to what he reveals of himself to you in his word. Fourth, true worship is Trinitarian. And this is verses 23 and 24. Jesus says that yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And here's what's going on here. A time is coming, Jesus says this again, and when worship's going to happen, and this is worship that is through Jesus uh, we're going to worship, he says, in spirit and in truth, that is, it's by the Spirit. And he says that the Father is seeking worshipers to the glory of God. And so we worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Spirit and truth here in these verses are not really two separate features, but they're really two concepts that are being woven together because true worship is always empowered by the Spirit who is himself the Spirit of truth. And that's how we experience the beautiful reality of worship. And I also want to point out, I love here that the, it says the Father is seeking worshipers. God is not just seeking worship. 
He's seeking worshipers. He is seeking people who will worship him. And here in this story, he is seeking a most unlikely candidate for true worship in this woman. Again, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to hear this. The Father is seeking you to be a worshiper. He wants you. He is reaching out to you. He's not seeking you so that you can become a church person. He's not seeking you so you can show up and do religious things once a week. He is seeking to have a relationship with you, a relationship where you worship the God who made you, who created you, and you learn what it really is like to have your thirst satisfied. Now, verse 25 sounds like she is looking for a Messiah to come, and some people think this is another deflection. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And we we don't need to be surprised that she has some understanding of the Messiah, the The Samaritans actually had a messianic expectation. They had the first five books of the Bible. Maybe you remember the prophecy in the Pentateuch about a prophet one day that's going to come who's greater than Moses. And I'm pretty sure that's what she was referring to. But I'm also pretty sure she did not anticipate what Jesus said next. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, am he. It's so beautiful. Jesus seeks this woman out, this outcast Samaritan, and he looks at her and he says, I am he. He is essentially saying to her, you have tried all these men. Will you take me to be your true groom? You have made a total mess of your life. Will you come to me? I will give you living waters. I am the best of all relationships. I can lead you to true worship. It is all in me. So come, come and take me. The phrase, I am he, that word he actually isn't in the original Greek text. It's simply, I am. I am. In other words, I am is the one who leads us to living water. This is, of course, a reference to the deity of Christ. In the Greek text, this phrase is positioned in an emphatic way. He's just saying, I am satisfies our hearts. I am leads us to the most satisfying of relationships. Only a relationship with I am can satisfy. That's what Jesus is telling her. And please don't miss it. That's what Jesus is telling you. Jesus alone is the answer to everything you're looking for. Only Jesus can satisfy the thirsts in your heart. In verses 27 through 30, we kind of see what might be thought about as the outflow and the practical uh, response of this conversation in our lives because it never stops here. You can write this down. Jesus sends satisfied people to thirsty people. Here's what I want you to hear, okay? As you read these last few verses, Jesus doesn't come to satisfy your thirst so that you can just keep drinking and drinking and drinking 
without responding in a real tangible way. Jesus satisfies your thirsts so that you can go as a satisfied person to more thirsty people. Does this make sense? Look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or, or why are you talking with her? So the disciples come back, and they're kind of funny, aren't they? They, they miss the whole thing. This is sort of the way it is a lot of times. They, they're just sort of there, and they don't get it. Um, and we shouldn't laugh too hard at them, right? Because they're sort of like us. <laughs> and they come back, and they've got their pockets full of falafels, and they're hungry. They want to eat. I mean, that's really all they're thinking about. And they're looking at Jesus, and they're wondering, why is he talking to this woman? And then in verse 28 and 29, it says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I think it's interesting that she leaves her water jar, the whole reason that she came to the well in the first place. I think she's probably so overwhelmed by everything that she just leaves and goes. And uh, she goes, and the first thing notice that she does is she tells people, come and see this man. And this Samaritan woman actually becomes the evangelist who sparks a citywide revival. It says in verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. See, this outcast woman, she tells her story, and she leads the whole town to the Messiah. Jesus is later, if you keep reading verses 31 through 42, he's going to talk about her, and he's going to talk about the other Samaritans. He's going to call them a harvest. And these people in this village, they're going to call Jesus the Savior of the world. We can identify with this woman, can't we? We're not superior to her. And if you feel like you're somehow above her and beyond her, you need to remember, all of us, we were outsiders before we became insiders. We were thirsty, trying everything, everything but Jesus, to satisfy our souls. We were blind, just like her, unable to see the truth of the gospel. We were immoral, People in need of cleansing, in need of forgiveness, in need of deep change. We were not true worshipers, but then we met the Messiah. And now, if we've met him, we should be saying to the whole world, come and see this man. Come and see this man. Are, are you saying that to the world? Come and see the Messiah. Because Jesus has satisfied me fully and forever. He's the only one who can satisfy the thirst in your heart too. I just want to ask you, are you thirsty? Is your soul thirsty? Is what you are currently worshiping eating you alive? I'm going to have good news for you, good news for the world. Jesus, the Messiah, he satisfies all your thirst, and he does that fully, and he does that forever. 
Jesus satisfies thirsty skeptics. He satisfies religious people, insiders and outsiders, and everyone in between, because Jesus freely offers us living water. But we must never forget that our satisfaction in him came at great cost. John writes his gospel so very carefully. And if you keep reading in John's gospel, you will get to the end of the gospel, toward the end of the gospel in John chapter 19. And we will see there another reference to thirsting as Jesus is hanging on the cross. And you'll remember this. He cries out, I thirst. John 19, 28 to 30 says, Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, what is happening right there is that on the cross, Jesus traded places with thirsty humanity. Jesus died for unworthy people. And at that moment, he was cut off from the Father, cut off from that most intimate of relationships that he had known from eternity past, cut off so that we, so that you and me could be brought into that Trinitarian love. On the cross, Jesus experienced a judgment Worse than any dehydration, worse than any physical torture, worse than any relational or emotional pain that any one of us could ever experience. He was lifted up on that tree and he there absorbed the furious wrath of the Father that we may be satisfied, that we may drink from the well of salvation. Jesus was crucified for people like this woman and for people like you and people like me. See, the point in John 4 is really very clear. Do not look to people to satisfy you. They didn't die for you. There is no functional savior that can save you or satisfy you. They'll never die for you. Don't look to any human relationship to satisfy you. It didn't die for you. Don't look to your career or to pleasure or politics or religion to, die, to satisfy you. They didn't die for you. But Jesus did die for you. Jesus will satisfy you. Jesus was thirsty so that we never have to be thirsty again. And he looks at us today and he says to us today, I am he. I'm he. Embrace me. I am what your heart needs. Jesus says, throw away those water jars and come to me and drink from the fountain of salvation. You see, whether you're coming to Jesus for the first time today, and we pray that you will, and we would love to talk to you about what that would look like for you to follow Jesus, to give him your life, please let us know if you want to do that. Or whether you're here today and you've known him for some time, you're coming as a believer into his presence again, you're coming back to the well to drink again today. Whoever you are, wherever you are, this is where you look. This is the only place that we should look. And let me leave you with this question. Why would we look anywhere else? Would you bow your heads as we pray?